I always had this dream or vision of waking up and going to work and actually being interested in going to work, like actually being excited about going to work. I haven't got up dreading going to work in five years. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. Recently, we asked our followers what questions we should start including in our founder interviews. There were so many fantastic suggestions, and one in particular was perfect for our next guest. Should you make a business out of your passions or hobbies? In this episode, I speak with Brian Borchevsky, founder and CEO of Rock Golf, an indoor golf entertainment company with locations in Austin, Texas. Brian shares his entrepreneurial journey from watching his father build a successful meat provisions business to starting his own fantasy sports software venture before regulations changed and caused him to close. He then tapped into his life savings to launch Rock Golf during a chaotic time in his personal life. We dive into the gritty realities of those early days, like realizing he had no point of sale system to take payments just days before opening. Brian also shares the steep learning curve of leasing retail space, hiring employees, managing cash flow, and delegating tasks. Ultimately, Brian's passion for golf and vision to create better jobs in an industry he loves is what sustains him through the roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship. Brian, thank you so much for making the drive up 35. In fact, you're from Austin. I think every one of our guests that lives in Austin, we've actually done in person, whether it was us being down there and it just happened to work out or people have driven up. So really, really appreciate the effort. That's not a short drive, especially when you got a business to run. It has changed a lot in the last 25 years since I've been doing that drive. It seems like it's been under construction the entire time, but they kind of have Waco figured out now. So it's not, it wasn't as bad as it has been before. So we're getting there. I'm just over 40. 35 has been under construction my entire life, and I'm sure that it will be under construction through my kids' entire life. So just part of it. Yep. And it's always driving through Hillsboro is interesting. It used to be like, oh, let's, we're going to go down to Hillsboro and, and go to the outlets. Now it's like ghost town. Right. But they built a Bucky's there, so maybe it's on the rebound. So we'll see. When Bucky's pops up, you never know what else is going to come along. Well, you're not a native to Austin, if I understand correctly. Where'd you grow up? Just north of Philadelphia. Okay. And what was growing up like for you? So my dad owned his own company. It was a meat provisions company. So they did portion controlled proteins, sold it to restaurants. I believe he started in in 1980. So I was born in 77. So I was very young when he started. So I don't remember the very, very early days, but I remember it from when he had his first little store and, and it was him and two other guys and they worked seven days a week, you know, 14 hours a day trying to to get that thing off the ground. And I remember vaguely going with him to that place. You know, in the beginning, we didn't have much money and, you know, wasn't successful right off the bat. He owned a, he was a partner in a gas station, a Hess station. Um, before he started that business, his business partner passed away kind of suddenly and their family didn't go well. And kind of, he got taken advantage of a little bit. So he, one of the guys that worked for him, he said, Hey, that's, he came from the meat business and he's like, let's start a meat business. And my dad was like, okay, let's do that. So they started the meat business and took it from two, three guys to when my dad left and finally sold his portion of the business to his partner. I think they had 40 or 50 guys doing 20 or 30 million a year. So he built it into a pretty big business. And I kind of was there watching the whole way from the beginning where it was a struggle and we didn't see him much to when he became very successful and and had 
not uber successful, but enough to where we were comfortable and money wasn't an issue. And he had flexibility to go to our games and go to do everything he wanted. And that's kind of always what I wanted for my family. It wasn't necessarily trying to get extremely wealthy, although that would be nice. It was more the, I see entrepreneurship as having your own business and having the flexibility to, to really be with your family and and do those things and not be bound by, you know, the nine to five corporate life. So that was always in the back of my head of something I wanted. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get into like how it finally came to fruition, but kind of typical suburban upbringing wasn't Westlake, but it wasn't, you know, far out either. It was kind of somewhere in the middle. It was a nice suburb, smaller school now compared to everything that's around us. It would probably be a 3A school here. I think my graduating class was like 400. So decent sized school. So we were outside of the city, so we didn't go into, into Philly that much, but you know, big Eagles and Flyers fans and being in Texas now, that's been interesting. You but, probably get a lot of looks in, uh, in football season. Oh yeah. It's been fun though, because for most of the time we've been here, the Eagles have kind of dominated the matchups, but we're mutually kind of terrible this year. So, <laughs> or disappointing, I should say. But growing up, it was, you know, things were hard and there wasn't much. And when I was really young, then it kind of got pretty comfortable. Then towards the end, when I was in high school, college, it got, you know, he, things were doing pretty well for my, my dad and his business and it was growing. So you mentioned a turning point where he had staff and he was able to come to your game. So I take it you played some sports. Mm-hmm. I played baseball, football, a little bit of soccer here and there, kind of always been a a decent athlete and can play any sport that I kind of try to, you know, I was never exceptional at any of them, but I was never, I could, I could play any of them at a, a fairly decent level. So football was probably my main sport growing up. I had a bad skiing accident and kind of hurt my lower back. So that, that was always a hindrance in, in the football world. I was good at baseball. I just didn't really love it as much. Football is kind of my main sport, but it was once I got to college, I didn't really play sports anymore. As a kid, did you spend time up at work with your dad? You got a front row seat? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I would go with him sometimes. And it's ironic thinking back now when my my five-year-old wants to come to work with me. I'm like, I remember that. I was probably more of a, a hindrance to him than than helping him. But he was probably trying to, because there's knives and equipment and bandsaws everywhere. So Perfect like, place have, for yeah, a kid. Perfect place for a kid to be running around. So... I remember those days. So I would go with them and see it. And I I can still kind of see that first building they were in. But then once I got to high school, I started working for him. And that's when I got, you know, fully exposed to the business. I helped him kind of kind of grow into the new facility. And and eventually in college, I had, you know, I was in engineering school and when they were at making a big expansion, I helped kind of helped with that on that side of it. But I started doing all the crap jobs and that's you know, that's grounding. I think that's an important thing for that's a missing in a lot of kids that I'm seeing today is is having those hard labor blue collar jobs where I would I started making boxes and taking out the trash and cleaning the, the racks we would put the chicken on, which was disgusting. It was a valuable lesson to start with those jobs, not start in the office, you know, and start doing the the fun jobs and the, the, the nice jobs. You you start at the bottom and you learn learn what it takes to build the business and you kind of go up from there. Cleaning the chicken rack sounds like a pretty bad job. Was there a worse job than that? I was a 
dishwasher at a really bad catering place. And that was pretty awful. I did that job. I did landscaping. I did caddying. I was actually working a pottery place, like, like pouring pottery molds and pouring clay molds. Worked at my dad's company for a while. They're kind of all my pre-college jobs. You did a lot. Yeah. You've been working since you were how old? I guess my first job was that pottery job may have been freshman of high school. I mean, so it was pretty, it was pretty early. What was your favorite job that you had as a adolescent? Oh, I forgot one. I worked for my mom as a balloon decorator. So my mom started a, a little balloon decorating business and I built like balloon arches and letters out of balloons. That was fun. But then she fired me and then rehired me in the same day because she realized that I was the one that built everything and she couldn't really do the do the work without me. But I got a raise. <laughs> Wait, so <laughs> fired, rehired, and got a raise in the same day. Oh, yeah. Okay. She needed to get that job done. And I was like, well, who else is going to have to do it? I want my job back and I want more money. <laughs> And you had the upper hand. Yes, that's an important lesson learned. Okay. Those that actually can do the things have have a little bit of power in in the negotiations. I was just going to say, we'll we'll learn a a bit more about your negotiation tactics as we go along, but uh, we figured out where the foundation came from. The favorite job? I don't know. I, I mean, I liked a lot of the jobs. I liked to work. I've always liked that. In the early days, I assume we're not talking about like once I got into my career, but I mean, I liked working for my dad and being a butcher. It was fun. I, one of the things I did was I was kind of in charge of the cooler, which is massive. And you would have boxes and boxes and boxes of primal cuts, which are like five and ups and one by ones that you cut strip steaks out of. And they're 60 to a hundred pounds a box. And we would have 40,000 pounds come in a day and I would unload them all and by hand unload all the boxes off the trailer into our kind of staging area you know, take the old stuff out, put the new stuff in, put the old stuff on top, make sure the racks were nice and square and, and stable. And and I was very proud of the the cooler and keeping the cooler very organized and, and manageable and make sure the boxes were stacked straight because if they weren't stacked straight, they would kind of fall over. So I, I really like that job and it kept me in shape. Yeah. If you're uh, moving around 60 to 100 pound boxes, that, that'll get you. Yeah. Well, you mentioned college. Where where did you go to school? I think you went to school in Delaware. Yep. University of Delaware, the Fighting Blue Hands. Pride of Joe Flacco is the pride of Delaware, I think. All right. Big school? Mm, 14,000, I think. Okay. Somewhere around there. So small in today's world. In high school, I wasn't necessarily exceptional. And I was kind of a little bit lazy, like I think most high school kids are. And this is before the days of talking to some of the high school kids today where you fill out one online application it goes everywhere like you had to actually fill out every application and write every essay so i'm like i'm not doing that 10 times so i applied to delaware and villanova and i got into both and realized that i couldn't really afford villanova so i went to delaware and it was close yeah they were both 40 minutes to an hour from where we grew up delaware i could get there in like an hour and 15 minutes from my house i think you mentioned engineering what kind of engineering I landed in civil engineering. So my degree was in civil engineering, but I started with environmental chemistry, actually. When I was filling out the applications, there was just, what major do you want? There's just a bunch of stuff, and I didn't really know. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll just check that box. I don't think at the time I fully grasped that that was going to be my major. So show up to orientation and in this little room with like six or eight other kids that are signed up for environmental chemistry, and the professor's all excited and starting to talk about all the chemistry. I'm like, I don't really like chemistry. Like, why am I here right now? This is not going to work out. So I quickly switched out of that into 
something else. Uh, I think it was criminal justice at first because I wanted to be an FBI agent. Then I kind of, in the first semester, I took some CJ classes and kind of realized that they weren't going to make any money. CJ, is that criminal justice? Yeah, criminal justice. Okay. And then started looking for other majors and I just looking through the syllabus, like at all the things and I was reading down the list of the civil engineering courses and I'm like, yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that. I was always good at math and science. So switched into civil engineering and took statics, which is kind of like the first course you take when you do civil engineering and loved it. And I was like, all right, this is the right major for me. So I didn't even really know what engineering was when I went into school. So I had no intention of being an engineer. But in hindsight, I was always good at building things and solving problems. And that was its core. That's what engineering really is. It teaches you how to solve problems. Did you like math or did you come to like math? I don't love math, but I always came much more naturally than language and English. So it means spelling don't get along. Grammar, no. Rules are more clear in math. Yes. I'm much more numbers than spelling, grammar. What were your favorite classes in college? I mean, I loved all the engineering stuff. I really liked geology. I, In hindsight, I should have taken a couple more geology courses. I could have got a minor in geology and how the earth works, plate tectonics, you know, the core. And, and I just love rocks, minerals, what the composition of all those, how the different layers of, of the earth. And I loved that, that field, how the earth is formed. So it's also a big unknown we still don't know a lot about what's going on underneath of us. So I've always found that interesting, but also the stuff where you get to build things and structural analysis and, and building frames and trusses and, and identifying how much, you know, load is on each and how big members need to be. But I kind of worked my way into my specialty, like in civil engineering is very broad. It covers a lot of space anywhere from, structures to traffic engineering to environmental engineering which is really wastewater treatment i mean it, it goes across the board and i kind of found my way into material science so we're studying concrete and steel and how materials are made and mainly construction materials are made so concrete was really my specialty so that i loved all those courses that's a first on the podcast <laughs> concrete is my specialty mm -hmm. you grew up working we talked about you know, lots of jobs. Did you work your way through college as well? So my dad was very smart and he put money aside for my brother and I's college education, put it into a, a mutual fund that did well. And basically we had X dollars and he said, here's what you have for college. If you have any leftover, you can have it. If you need more, you are going to have to pay for it. So kind of taught budgeting early on. And that was smart. And I was like, well, if I go to Villanova, it's going to cost this. I'm not going to have enough. I'm going to go to Dillard. I can probably squeeze by. But in, I worked during the summers and I worked, I did some bouncing when I was in college. So that was kind of my, my job in college. Bouncing like at a bar. Mm. Okay. And in the summers I would work for my dad or, or do the landscaping gig or, or whatever when I was at home. And so I always work in the summers as well. All right. You graduated with a civil engineering degree, but that's not the field that you went into after school? No. So when I graduated in 99, it was right at the kind of start of the tech boom. There wasn't any real talent out there and schools hadn't really caught up. The MIS and CIS programs at schools weren't that many kids in them. And there weren't that many people graduating those degrees. So at the job fair, I just remember all the tech companies were offering the moon compared to the, the civil engineering companies. 
I ended up getting a job. I had, I think I had four offers, if I remember correctly. Uh, one of them was with Turner Construction, who is a huge, huge commercial construction yes, company. So I would have been doing building sports complexes and, and buildings. They didn't do roads, I don't think. But it was funny because everybody in our classes wanted that job. And I got one of the two offers they made. And I turned it down to go with this little IT startup in Philadelphia that I was going to be an Oracle DBA. So got this big, you know, how to do Oracle book and was going through that. And I took the job in the winter. So the whole spring semester was my last semester. I was not going to be in civil engineering anymore. So I was kind of just having more fun than focusing on school and kind of getting ready to, to get out of engineering and get in the IT space. And then I forget May, June, somewhere, I forget what, what exactly it was, but I called the company and I was like, hey, how's, how are things going? And what do you want me to be doing? I haven't heard much from you guys. And they basically said, oh, we didn't get some work that we were hoping to get. So you don't have a job anymore. And are you thinking, hey, can I call Turner Construction back? And I'd called them immediately and they're like, oh, no, that offer is gone. So all my offers went away. One of my favorite professors from school, my concrete professor, he transferred to to Texas. And before we left, you know, we talked, we were, we were pretty good friends. And he said, hey, if you ever want to go to grad school, let me know. So I called him up and said, hey, remember when you said that thing about grad school? Is that still possibly an option? And he's like, well, the deadline's in two weeks or something like that. So you have to take the GREs, which I hadn't even prepped for really been paying attention to school for six months take the GREs you have to do really well if you do that we'll see what we can do so crammed took the GREs did really well got a full ride to go to UT engineering graduate school I went from thinking I was going to be an Oracle DBA to packing up everything I owned and driving off to Texas so it was a pretty substantial change of plans and really had no, wasn't really prepared for. And just all of a sudden, just boom, you know, I'm on my way to Texas. Here we go. Wow. That's a very fast change. Yes. What were your parents saying to you at this time? Uh, I think my mom is pretty devastated because my brother at the time, he was in Dallas. He took a job. Part of the reason I went the IT route, he kind of was always in the business IT world. And he was an IT consultant. Uh, I forget for him. I forget who he worked for at the time, but I mean, this is in like the glory days of IT consulting. He was flying around first class and, you know, as a junior consultant even, and having these big expensive dinners with $100 bottles of wine and corporate apartment. And I'm like, this looks better than concrete. So that's kind of what led me into wanting to get into the IT world is just look how great this is. And then, you know, then the crash happens right, right soon after that. But he transferred to Dallas because we grew up in an Italian family and Nobody really leaves the nest of our hundreds of cousins. They're all still in Philadelphia or around Philadelphia. Like my brother and I are kind of the black sheep because we we left. And my mom's still kind of devastated by that, that we're now both in Austin and have families in Austin and, and we're not in Philly with the whole family. But yeah, it was a pretty big, quick turnaround. And my brother was in, as I said, as I said my brother was in Dallas at the time. So kind of drove down there and, and I went to visit him once. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. Like my perception of thinking back on it is pretty funny. My perception of what Texas was like when growing up in Philadelphia, I thought it was, you know, everybody walking around in boots and riding horses in the streets and, you know, tumbleweed going across. And I'm like, then I got here. I'm like, oh, no, this is pretty awesome. Actually, I like this. Modern civilization. Oh, yeah. We have running water. And- I know. I, I was shocked. Like, like there's not outhouses everywhere. 
but no, it was awesome. And I, I loved it and he loved it. And, and uh, yeah, this is probably going to be somewhere I want to end up. All right. So you, you did finish the engineering graduate program? No, I got there. So kind of continuing the story, I got there and I had been out of the mindset of school for a while. Um, I was ready to start my IT career and make money and fly around on first class and, and go to big corporate dinners and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden I'm back at school, like limited budget, talking about, you know, what your thesis is going to be. And I was just like, man, this is not really what I want to be doing. And furthermore, since I was pretty much the last one to get into the program, all the classes were taken that I would have taken. So I was taking like advanced graduate steel design when I didn't take undergraduate steel design at top five engineering school in the world. So, and I was taking some crazy math classes that I was nowhere near prepared for. And so it didn't go, I was just, I was not motivated, didn't go well. And I was like, all right, this isn't going to work. So I started immediately looking for other opportunities. I found a company in Dallas that hired, basically hired engineers and taught them how to code and took that job, went up there, started working there. And that's where I started actually getting, actually got into IT and actually started, became a developer. Was the mindset there that engineers are naturally oriented toward problem solving and what we do with software is solve problems and therefore we just need to teach them to code? Yep. It's, they have the mental aptitude and the technical background to understand how to code. And most engineers at that point had some, like I had a Fortran class, so I did some Fortran coding in, in college. So most engineers had some type of programming built into it. So yeah, so I think that their mentality was we'd rather, again, at that time, the schools were behind. So they weren't putting out the best developers. So their philosophy was we were going to hire smart people, teach them how to do it the way we want them to do it. And that's going to be a better result for us and than having kids that were taught by who knows how good of technical talent at the, at the colleges in those days. It's probably changed since, but back then it wasn't, you know, what was coming out of school wasn't as good as what they could create by hiring, you know, the people with the aptitude and, and teaching them how to code, how they wanted them to code. Do you remember the first assignment, like the first thing that you built? One of the first things we did at that company was I kind of helped design their website, which wasn't really, because I was still learning how to code. So I wasn't, they weren't ready to put me on a project actually building something. So I helped kind of rebuild their website a little bit. And then the first project I was on there, I was, it was in Colorado, actually. So went out to Denver, you know, it's the office was at the top floor of, of one of the big buildings in Denver and had a corporate apartment. And that was, that was awesome. And it was in the energy space. The company I worked for was, they had a lot of software that did kind of energy accounting, like upstream and downstream. They did a lot in that space. And this was a, it was a production company in Duke Energy. Yeah. I think it was them um, who was the client and, and it was really just kind of helping them on a networks on their kind of infrastructure side, which wasn't my specialty. I wasn't really writing any code there for that client. And then, so I wasn't at that company very long, actually only like eight months. And then I went to another company in Dallas that where I was, was more pure IT consulting and, and development. And that was where I started really, that was the first project where I really started writing code and having my code show up in into space. And it was with a, my first project there was in Lubbock with a, a Sprint affiliate. And we basically built their kind of intranet site where, you know, their employees could go find information and submit forms and collect data. And this is all, you know, in 
early 2000s. So it's in the infancy of software development and, and building things like that. So, but that was an interesting, I remember going to Lubbock for the first time and landing in Lubbock and looking out the window. I'm like, this place is really ugly. <laughs> I mean, just brown as far as you could see and like the cotton fields look like there's litter everywhere. I'm like, this is not the glorious job I was looking for, glorious project I was looking for, but it ended up being a really good project because it was basically me and two other colleagues. And I did a lot of the heavy work on the programming. So, you know, it's, it was kind of trial by fire and the, the project went well and it was successful. And, and then that kind of led to a bunch of other projects. And I was at that company for, it was a small kind of niche consulting company. And then it got bought by SunGuard. So SunGuard was a very big software company at the time, big financial software company. We were kind of their custom dev IT kind of consulting arm within SunGuard and worked for them for eight years, 10 years, something like that. Had a bunch of, you know, kind of did the, went up the chain as far as, you know, you're the hardcore developer writing out the code, then you're kind of leading a team of developers and you're leading the projects and you're leading the programs and then you're getting more into the, the true like strategic consulting and sales. So kind of your technical consultant developer path is where what I kind of went up. So the world's a little bit different today in, you know, 2024 than it was back then in what early mid 2000s. But you were there for a long time and especially in the consulting world, like it's a grind or it can be, especially if you're with a bigger firm and you're working with big, you know, enterprise type companies, like it's typically long hours and, you know, really, really hard work. What kept you there? That's a long time, especially by today's standards. I really liked the people I was working with. I still, I'm still in touch with a couple of them. The guy who was my kind of mentor, I think he's running the Dallas office now. He should be if he isn't. But I really liked the group we were working with and I liked the company and it was better when it was smaller as it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think they actually got bought out by FIS now. More corporate, more corporate, more corporate, more corporate. And that's when I started kind of getting less interested and kind of, I liked the small niche kind of family aspect of it. And as it got bigger and more corporate, it kind of got more tedious and more red tape and more boundaries to success. And I wasn't a fan of that. So that's one thing I always remember. Like when, if I always said, if I ever start my business, I don't care how long somebody has been there. I don't care how old they are. If they're doing the job and they're doing it well, they're going to get bumped up and, and get promoted. There's not going to be these, you must be at this position two years before you can make it to the next position, before you can make it to the next position. Because I got held back because of that a number of times and it frustrated me. So I always vowed that if I ever start my own business, that I'm not going to do that. I'm going to rapidly promote the people that earned it and deserve it. So what did you go on to do after that? I left there and went to another company for a little bit. It was Sejeti. I was only there for one project, I think. I was kind of losing my motivation. It just like, I wasn't passionate about it. I didn't love it anymore. I was like, this kind of stinks came down to Austin and I I started working on kind of my own I want to build a a fantasy sports kind of platform not to compete with like DraftKings but to if you play fantasy sports you need to build a bunch of rosters and lineups and manage them and if you want to do it successfully you have to you need it's you can't do it on the back of a napkin you you need some intelligence behind it and so I was building that platform and kind of on the side and then started doing it more seriously. And then that's when 
kind of Texas shut down fantasy sports. I was like, all right, well, that's not good. From there, I got another job, kind of picked up another gig running a, a redevelopment of a, basically the whole software platform for a, a friend of mine at the country club I was a member at and did that project for about a year. But the whole time I was, I wanted to start my own business. I wanted to start something. And that's when I, I kind of started putting things together for what Rock Off was going to become, what I, what I wanted. And, and then when that contract was up, I, I just kind of pushed all the chips in the middle and started, started Rock. When you were doing the, the fantasy sports thing, did you say that at some point you were doing it like that was full time? Yeah, that was, that, was... Full, that was full time for me for probably almost six, eight months, I would say. I was like, I was all in on it. I didn't have another job. I didn't have another contract. I didn't, I finished up one contract that I was doing in Austin, the contract that moved me down here. In fact, I was finishing that up. And then once I got done with that, it was a pretty lucrative contract. So I had a little, little cushion. So I started kind of just banging away on this software platform and, and building it out. And I got it to where it was pretty neat. And it's frustrating now because my vision is out there in a bunch of different platforms and they're, they're killing it. I'm like, man, regulations have changed and. Oh yeah. Now, now it's all legal. And, and what I wanted to build is out there and like, yep, would have worked and would have been pretty cool. Um, so I always kind of look back on that and, and in hindsight, it's reassuring because like I, I had something I was right. I just didn't have the guts to see it all the way through and, and stick with it. I was like, I have probably like three or four more months of money before I'm in trouble. So can I get this thing to where it's making money in three or four months? And I was like, eh, probably not. So I, that's why I got another, another kind of it consulting gig. And in the meantime, got a little cash and then, then realized, found a way to invest basically my life savings into, in the rock and, and start that. With the fantasy app, did you actually have users on the platform or were you still developing it in order to get it to market? No, we were developing it, developing it to get it to market. I was working with a couple of friends who they were like kind of my users, if you will, my, my trial users to, to help work on the platform. And basically, it was kind of like a combination of analytics. So you could look at the player. I brought in data from there was a, a service that just presented you with all all the data, all the numbers from every sport that you wanted. So you would sign up for football or baseball or whatever. And we were focusing on football and basketball. So I'd bring in all the numbers and then I built a really cool display that enabled you to look at the numbers and the performance without bias. So you weren't looking at the names, you were looking at the actual color coded, you know, like heat maps on, on how many points they were getting and what type of player they were and classifying them. And then we could work together saying that you know, I like these guys, I like these guys. And then I would go into an engine and spit out combinations of those within the budgets for the, for the teams. And then here's all your lineups and then you can mass import them into the GPPs. And so all that exists now, but it was, we were way ahead of the game and it would have been pretty groundbreaking if, if I would have got it all the way there, but I just didn't have, I didn't have the capital. I didn't have the budget. I couldn't, I had to put food on the table and I had to survive and I just couldn't make it. I didn't have with it being illegal in Texas, that was making it really hard. And I just had to make the calculation as this, can I get this to where it's going to start making money in two or three months? I was like, no, I don't think I can. And the, the downside is pretty terrible. So I kind of, I still have all the code. It's all, it's all there somewhere, but um, maybe one day we'll, we'll knock the dust, dust off, off. Of, and see what, see what's there. Yeah. But I was playing like pseudo professional fantasy sports for a little while and made like, at one point, I was up like seventy-five grand, 
So, oh my gosh, I had one big weekend where we were up like 55 grand in one week. Like I started with a couple hundred bucks. So once you figure it out, there's ways to do it and ways that you can, can make some money doing it. That was my idea. I was like, well, I think this is actually a beatable game. You're looking at patterns and interesting. You just have to take your, your bias out of it. Don't pick all the Eagles or the Cowboys. You have to pick the, you know, the right players in the right situations, overlay, you know, weather and history and things like that on top of it. So actually some of the stuff I was going to build into it doesn't exist yet. So maybe I can do that someday. Roughly what time frame is this? Like early 2010s, mid 2010s? This is like, yeah, 2011, 12, somewhere in there, 13, maybe. So the iPhone's been out for a few years. You got the app store. People are are very, very used to doing this kind of thing mm-hmm. online. And Oh, this would have been, this was not going to be an app. It was a, a browser-based desktop. I'm sure there would have been an app version at some point, but I needed a lot of screen space to, to do all the things that, that we were doing. This is, this is a, like, I built business applications, like, and this was definitely an, in that vein it wasn't it wasn't a little you know thing on your phone to to play around with it was a serious interface so this doesn't work out you go get another it consulting gig and you said you did that for about a year it was about a year i think so a guy that i knew he had his own company and and just talking with him playing golf i was like man you need you're sitting on a time bomb with your your it infrastructure just on the stories you're telling me so talked more and more and more and when when i needed a gig i was like hey now, have you ever thought about doing this? And and kind of, you know, just fell into place. I worked with the guys I worked with before at SunGuard. Like, I basically went to them and said, hey, I have this project. Do you guys think you can do this? And and brought them in. And I was just part of the team. Kind of, I was basically managing the project. They were doing all the, the technical stuff. And I was more or less managing the project, more of a project manager and, and product manager than, than I wasn't doing any of the actual development on it. But basically rebuilt their entire platform. And it was the kind of work you were used to doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was custom app dev, pure custom app dev. And so, you were able to just slide right back in. Yeah. At that point, I wasn't that far removed. I was only a year removed. And during my whole fantasy thing, I was writing code. I mean, I was that's probably the heaviest code I've ever written. I mean, I was up till midnight, 1 a.m. every night, just pounding out code. So I was technically sharp at that point, for sure. Going backward just a little bit, you talked about when you found civil engineering, like that seemed to be your thing. You were a concrete guy. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded like your impetus to get into IT was you're watching your brother have like this, you know, the high life, right? Or or what you perceive to be that. Once you got into the IT world, the software development world, did you have a passion for it? And was it what you thought it would be, what you wanted it to be? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, I fell in love with it. What I realized, what I really like to do is build things. And with code, as you know, you can I can build something in an hour and actually see it and use it, play with it, touch it. In the engineering world, it takes much, much longer time to actually see your work. I really fell in love with, with development and writing code. And if you think about it, it's very similar to building a building or, or building any civil engineering project. You have the same phases. You have the same pattern. You do the same things. You're just using code instead of steel and concrete. I mean, you have to do your planning. You have to, you know, you have to build it. You have to have your kind of iterative development, if you will. It's very similar process. And I just liked that I could do it real quickly. I've got three kids. My oldest is going into high school next year. And and recently there was a, an orientation, a high school orientation, kind of a 
event he went to. And we're talking about the different classes that are offered and electives, and they've got a phenomenal career center in our uh, in our school district. And it's rare that we all get to eat dinner together because we're, you know, somebody's at this and somebody's at that, but we've got all five of us at, at dinner. And I said, you know, guys, I would like for all of you to take a computer programming class in high school. And I'm not saying you need to go into the software development world. I'm not saying I want you to go into it. But I think if you if you got into it and you liked it, it would open a ton of doors. But more importantly, I think that there's so much you can learn about the process because you start with this big problem and you have to figure out your way backward and you have to put it into small chunks to solve this big problem. And so I personally think everybody could benefit from it. And, and I'm saying that as somebody who never actually took a class like that, I wish I had. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, I think that. I always, I, when I was at SunGuard, I used to do a lot of the college recruiting and interviewing. And in an interview, I'd always ask a question, like, what's the most important thing you learned at school? And you get all kinds of answers, this or that, blah, 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 blah. But the answer I was looking for, and I got it once or twice, is I learned how to learn. And I think that's the most important thing that comes out of school. It's not any specific, I mean, I, clearly I don't use 90% of the actual things I went to college for, but... I use the process that how to break down a problem into, as you said, small, you know, manageable things, solve that problem, move on to the next, move on to the next, move on to the next. And that's how you solve big problems. And I think engineering specifically, but IT as well, it teaches you how to do that. And that's one thing I'm almost fearful of with all the stuff that's going on now, the automation, the AI, the, the AI writing code you're losing those skills to an extent. You know, asking ChatGPT to, to write you a piece of code, to me, that's you don't understand what's actually happening underneath. Like back in the day, it used to be, for me, it was like when you had the, the WYSIWYG, you know, tools where what you see is what you get. You just drag something on and this magically happens. And I always hated those because I'm like, well, you don't know what it's actually doing underneath. You don't know where the data is coming from, where it's going. And there's kind of two mentalities. There's the ones that's like, I don't care, it works. And there's the other ones like, I want to know what's happening. And I was always the, I want to know what's happening. And I want to be able to, to write the code to do it. And yeah, I think getting kids exposed, anything STEM, I mean, whether it's computer programming or, or even basic engineering courses or anything STEM related, I think is extremely important at a young age. Like try to get that going quickly because I mean, we're going to need problem solvers and Anybody that can has that kind of mentality is going to be ahead of the game. Talking about the need to actually understand what's going on behind the scenes with this and, and, and be able to put together other kitchen table conversations we've had recently is, why do I need to take math? Like, I've got a calculator. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. You have to know how to put the numbers into the calculator to solve the problem. The calculator, like, it's not about that. It's about being able to solve the problem. And that in and of itself doesn't solve the problem. I even talked to some kids today who are in engineering schools and I'm like, what are you like in school? Are you still like deriving the formulas yourself based on the, the, you know, the, the base formulas and at the beginning of your, your tests and your challenge, or are you just like punching numbers into a, into a software program that spits out the beam design? And I like, oh yeah, we're just, you know, we're shooting. I'm like, oh man, that's like, it's, it's like, <laughs> like, if you don't understand where it comes from, it's like, well, we're never going to have to do that. We're never going to write it out on, yeah, but if you don't understand it, it's, you don't have the context to, to understand what numbers you're typing in and where they come from and why they're important. So, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm old now, but when I still have pages on pages on pages of like working out the problems and 
and you know doing putting in all the formulas and all the variables and that's the other thing you learn in those schools if you make if you make a mistake in the beginning that carries all the way through on the page three and like your answer is going to be wrong but you could do everything right from steps you know three through 25 but if you got step two wrong and made one calculation error everything else is toast so you got to check your work yeah you get back into the, the IT space, you do this deal for a year, and in this time, you get the idea for what would become Rock Golf. Mm -hmm. Talk us through that experience. So, you know, I was doing that gig not because I was passionate about it, because I needed to. It was like I, I needed a gig, I needed the money. So, but the whole time, I'm like, I, I just felt empty. I don't know, just not motivated to, I didn't feel fulfilled. Yeah. So, I always had this dream or vision of, waking up and going to work and actually being interested in going to work, like actually being excited about going to work. And there were times I had that based on some projects I was on when I was at, at Sun Garden, other points in my career, but it wasn't truly like what I really wanted to be doing. I'm like, all right, so what do I like? You know, I liked, I like sports and I like cooking. I like, I like golf and I like, uh, so I was like, I need to find, I want to find a way to make one of these a business. And so I went to a custom fitting place and my brother got me a, a custom fitting for you go to a place and they look at your golf clubs and you buy golf clubs and they fit them to your swing. They had something called TrackMan in there. And TrackMan is this platform where you hit a golf ball and into a net, you know, cage, and it tells you, it has a video of your swing, it tells you all the numbers, says, you know, my your the ball speed was this, the club speed was this, the face angle was this. It has a video of your golf swing and it shows you in slow motion kind of what your swing looked like. And that was the first time I really hit on anything like that. And just, I was like, holy, if I had this, I would actually get better at golf. And we haven't talked about, I wasn't a good golfer. I was an avid golfer. That isn't to say I'm a good golfer. And I was frustrated because I didn't have time, number one, to play a lot of golf. And I was, I took some lessons and, you know, I would go out to the range and, and try to get better. And it just wasn't really getting better, but I couldn't really afford lessons with the, the high-end pros or anything like that but i had the mindset and I, I had the the technical ability to understand how the golf swing work and you know from an engineering perspective it's you know it's all engineering as far as club hits ball ball compresses ball goes off their spin you know drag all the things you need to understand that like how the golf swing works and when i got on track I'm like, man if i had this i could actually start getting better so that kind of the light bulb went off at that point and i started looking i was like what if i just wanted to rent this and there wasn't any place like in your house. No, if I could go to a facility and just I want to track man bay and I want to be able to rent it for an hour so I can hit coffles because to have it in your house, you need the space, which is it's 15 by 30, basically with 12 foot high ceilings that most people don't have that much space. And it's almost a garage. It's yeah. And then they need the budget. They're expensive to do it right. It's, you know, 40, 50 grand and they need the spousal approval, which is usually the one that gets you the most. Hey, honey, I want to put this, you know, three, 400 square foot golf bay in our house. No. So most people aren't going to be able to have one of these in their home. Most golf courses don't actually have them. Most country clubs don't have them. Like if you go to the big box golf stores like Golfsmith, I remember going up there and they had kind of very basic versions of it. And there would just be people lined up to just hit a couple of golf balls on a, on a launch monitor is what they're called, basically. And I'm like, man, I bet people would pay for this a lot. 
So I just started kind of putting the numbers together and and coming and doing the research and and looking at the market. I was like, is there anything out there that really does this? There were some kind of versions of it, but nothing like what I had in my mind. So that's kind of where the idea was born. What was the closest to what you had come up with? So there are there were two kind of similar ish models. There's one that was very instruction focused, but it was a very cold atmosphere. Um, it's called Golf Tech. It's still out there. It's probably heard of it if, if you're a golfer. It's they do. I think they claim that they do the most lessons in the country. They probably do, but it's not where you would go to hang out with your friends. Part of the what I wanted was like a golf cave that you would have in your basement and you'd bring your friends over and you'd play golf on, on the simulator and, you know, while you're watching it. So you would never do that at, at that place. And then there was the other side of the spectrum. It was just that it was just play course, drink, have fun, you know, but you're not really going to get better. They didn't have lessons. And I was like, I think there's a way to do both. Like it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. It can't, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And there are a couple just, one-offs I found, but nothing nothing really big and structured that had it mass-produced or, or had gotten momentum. Most of the ones I found were some golf pro wanted to be able to teach more when the weather was bad, and they threw a simulator in a thousand square foot, you know, retail place somewhere, and it and that was their, their simulator. It wasn't really that well put together. So when I started, there weren't many like it at all. So and there weren't any in, in Austin, really. So You've got this itch. You've got this vision. And are you married at this point? Yes. How long have you been married? Two years. And my wife is pregnant with our first kid. So you'd wrapped up this project. Were you looking for the next IT consulting gig? Or were you determined at this point already to go do your own thing again? I mean, I think once I started putting pieces together for what Rock Off would be, I was kind of committed to that. All in. Yeah. And then it's a capital intensive startup. I mean, it costs a lot to build out one of those, one of our facilities. And so I didn't have that much money. I have, you know, I, the consulting gigs were good and I did okay, but I, I didn't have millions of dollars in, in my bank account where I could be like, okay, we'll just cut a check and make it happen. So I had to figure out how to use my retirement savings to fund the business. And basically that's what I did. And I got some, some angel funding from my father as well. That was the seed capital I had. And in hindsight, I was probably 200% undercapitalized. I had nowhere near the amount of money I really needed. So I had to do everything. You know, I, I put all the money into getting the, you know, people don't understand. In, in the brick and mortar world, you can't just go out and say, I was want that spot there. Just sign me up. It's not like renting an apartment. Like That was a big eye opener for me as I thought, I could just find a vacant retail space and just sign it up. Oh no. Like I got turned down and turned down and turned down. And the landlords are like, you're you're gonna hit golf balls inside. Like, no, do it, go find somewhere else. Like so I quickly realized okay, this is gonna be a problem. I need to find a space. And that got more expensive. And then, you know, you get your first retail lease and it's 60 pages of legalese and like, all right. Are you doing this? real estate search on your own or did you have a, a commercial broker that you were working with i had a friend who was a commercial broker and he was doing a little bit for me but i was driving around looking at all the spots because another issue is that i came up with early on was it's not that easy to find spaces that 
fit the bays. I mean, they have to be a certain width. They, the, the columns can't be in the, you can't have a big steel column in the middle of your bay or in your backswing. So it had to be a pretty big space with pretty free span, you know, even if the, it couldn't be a weird shape because these are big rectangles that you need to stack next to each other. So you need a very specific space and a very specific kind of size and orientation. And, you know, I want it to be in a fairly nice shopping center. Like I want it to be convenient. A big part of the business model was convenience. Most people don't play golf because they don't have time to play golf. I didn't have six hours to go, you know, play around on the weekends. So with, you know, the simulators, you can play around in 20 minutes. So I want it to be, I want it to be very convenient. I want it to be off major roads in pretty high volume, high traffic centers. Anyway, so to answer your question, I was more or less doing the the search on my own. And just to restate, you not only had to find a place to rent that had the dimensions, the size specifications that you needed, but you also had to find a landlord that was willing to let you put this in there. Oh yeah. Landlords, especially big corporate ones, they don't they want nail salons and bagel shops and they don't like unknowns just last night i picked up my daughter we're driving home and there's a little strip center not far from our house and there's an indoor swim lesson an indoor swim school for kids there and i literally my daughter was asking about it and, and i said if i was the landlord there's no way i would let somebody put a swimming pool in my building like you think about okay if this doesn't work like, who am I going to find? There's only one kind of company that's going to, you know, take that space. And so how did you get through that objection from the landlords? I finally just found one that was, it's a pretty big company, but I met with the guy who was the, his father owns the, is the landlord basically. And kind of just had a bunch of meetings with him and convinced him that it was a, a good sell. And, and part of my convincing him was like, listen, I'm not going to customize the space too much. And that's part of my business model is we go into a big space, we set up our bays. And if we have to leave, it's just a big space. It's not, we don't, we don't, a lot of my competition is they put, I don't even know how much money into framing out all the bays and making it very, very specific to their needs. So if somebody else comes in, they have to knock all that down. It's, it's there's a lot of tenant improvement money that goes into that. There's a lot of tenant improvement money goes into that. For me, I just need a big white box. And we can put in everything we need. I need bathrooms, I need a bar, I need a little reception area, and that's it. And I need space. So if it doesn't work out, even after now being established, we're, we're just about to move into Westlake and probably the number two shopping center in in Austin, known by a huge REIT. And it took a lot of convincing for them, even though we have the numbers now and we have the proof that it's going to work. I mean, it was it was, it was was very tricky, and that was... One of the things like, listen, if we leave, this is what you're going to be left with. It's not going to be the space you can't leave. It's just going to be a, basically an empty shell. You can put whatever you want in here. So that became a big selling point. But early on, I think I just got, in hindsight, I looked back at the ones that said no. And in hindsight, if some of them would have said yes, it would have, I don't think we would still, I don't think we would have survived because I had to like go off the beaten path and and I was starting to, to look at places I didn't really want. I just needed somebody to say yes. And it just, it's funny how those things work out. Just the one that said yes ended up being in a good enough spot. It was the right, I could afford it. And it was a big enough space that it, it worked out. There's an important lesson in that. Like sometimes when you got this idea and you're just so eager to make it happen, you're willing to make a lot of compromises in order to just get going. 
But as you said, it would have been catastrophic if you would have taken one of these because it wouldn't have been in that traffic pattern that you're, you're looking for. It wouldn't have been in the, the right socioeconomic area. Do you ever wake up at night and go, golly, I'm so glad I didn't do that? There were some bullets I dodged I didn't know I was dodging at the time. There definitely were some. The one spot I almost signed up with, ironically, it's in the same shopping center my Bee Cave one is now. They were going to be willing to rent me a spot, but it was way too small. And I would have had to make the bays way too tiny. And people would have been hitting the walls with the clubs all the time. And it would have been a terrible experience. And it was going to be on the upper end of what I could have afforded, which in hindsight, I probably couldn't have afforded. And it was going to not go well. So I have definitely dodged those bullets. But even the bigger bullet was at the beginning of Rock, there are kind of two paths. So the business is always going to, there are going to be two parts of it. There's going to be the brick and mortar side of it, and there's going to be a software side of it. So I'm not going to give up my software dreams. So we plan on kind of building a custom software platform for our business because there isn't one out there that handles what we do. And there are a lot of places like rock popping up and we're all struggling with the same problem. We have a lot of different use cases that go into what we need to do from bookings, from a lot of people are like, oh, just use a green grass golf system. Like, no, we're not, we're not even, yes, we're golf, but that's about the end of the similarities. Green grass golf courses, they don't care who's in the bay and how long you've been there. They just care when you start. You know, we care, is it an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and who was in there and what membership type they are. So a lot of the different use cases that we have, they break a lot of the systems that are out there. So I kind of realized that early on. And I was going to start by building the software platform first and then do the brick and mortar. And if I would have done that, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. I would have got the software platform wrong. I didn't know enough about the business space at the time. Some of the things I was going to build or would have been a complete waste. I just for a while was just kind of going back and forth on those decisions. And I was like, well, I know I can just have TrackMan the bays and I can sell that. People will pay just to be in there with nothing else, with no software, using the software that comes with TrackMan. I know I can sell that. I know people will come and use that. And then we'll see where the business goes. And then we'll start building the software once we get that part, the brick and mortar part going. So that was probably the biggest bullet that was dodged was choosing to do the brick and mortar first and wait on the software. Was that a serious consideration though? I'm going to go build software to support these companies, but there weren't that many that existed. And it wasn't necessarily at the time, I wasn't thinking of it to support the other companies. I was thinking of it to run my company yourself. Yeah. But I would have burnt through all my budget and, and all my time. It would have been a colossal mess if I had gone that path. That's a big investment. And we're, we're in the software technology business in my organization and, we get into conversations with clients about should I build or should I buy? And I mean, the, the economics of building oftentimes just, it's hard to make that work. If somebody's got something that works, run with it. Different story if you're going to go build a product and take it to market and sell it to all these people. But how long would it have taken you to get that V1 up and running? It probably would have taken me six months to get the core of what needed to be there. Not the not the bells and whistles, not the the love to haves, but just the must haves. But again, I would have gotten it all wrong. I, the path I was kind of going down was not the path I would be going down now. A lot of it would be there, but 
but a lot of it's very different. Do you consider yourself a patient person? Not generally, but I'm a logical person. If I know the timeline is unrealistic, I can be patient and know that it's it's going to take time to, to for that to happen. So I'm patient when it calls when patience is called for and mandated. You can see the long term payoff for waiting. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to something you mentioned a minute ago and don't want to get into numbers and details or anything like that. But you talked about tapping into your retirement to fund this, to get this off the ground. I am confident that many, many, many entrepreneurs have done just that. But it's not like you can just call up Schwab and say, hey, liquidate my IRA and send me money or give me that 401k rollover check, make it payable to me. There's penalties, there's tax consequences. Were there any things that you learned from that that you might help somebody else think through? Yeah, don't do it. It's a, there's a program out there, the acronym's ROBS, but it basically allows you to take your retirement savings money, IRA and 401k money, and basically invest that into a business. So in essence, you can self-directed IRAs, you can invest that into a business. So you're investing into a business, but it's a business that you're running yourself. But if you have employees and you run a legitimate business, it is a very good program conceptually to use your retirement savings to invest in yourself to start a business. All right. You find a landlord. It is in the the right budget range. They're willing to let you do it. You buy the equipment. Do you remember the first day that you were open? Oh, yeah. The big ribbon cutting with the giant scissors and... Well, so my son was born in the end of June, and our first day of business was the beginning of August. So literally, the ribbon cutting was a month after my month and a half after my son was born. So it was more this thing just needs to get open and this needs we need to start seeing money on the other side of the balance sheet. So it was there was no ceremony. There was no procession. There was we need to get this thing open and start going. That was 2018, 2017, somewhere there? 2018. All right. So it's August of 2018. You've got a six-week-old, five-week-old, eight-week-old, something like that. doesn't really matter at that point. You've gone through getting the lease, doing all the, the build-out, and it's it's time to open the doors. What was – do you remember the first customer, the first paying customer that came in? Yeah. I still have the $1 bill. For real? Yeah. Like the Chamber of Commerce comes and they give you that frame Mm -hmm. and you put your, okay. So, yeah, I remember the, and my background, again, wasn't really marketing and advertising. So I had zero budget for it. So I I did very little marketing. So in the beginning, it was all just somebody drove by, saw Goffin was this, came in. And that's how my first customers started coming in. I was a couple days away from opening and I realized like I have no way to take a payment. I have no POS system. I, I, if somebody comes in and wants to pay with a credit card, I'm going to have no way to do that. I'm like, okay, so... Uh, you just realized this days before uh, opening? We were in full chaos mode. So it was... Oh, yeah. It was nuts. I had never run a business. I had never owned a business. I never thought about owning a business. I had never done anything in retail. I had never done anything with, in brick and mortar. I wasn't even in the golf industry. So I was figuring it all out. Never built a golf bay. The title of the show is In the Thick of It, and man, you were in the thick of it. So a couple of days before open, I don't have a way to take a payment. Mm. What did you do? Luckily, some a guy walked in and he worked, his business was he set up POS systems. 
And I literally did zero due diligence. I'm like, set me up. Just make it so I can take a credit card payment. Doesn't matter how much it costs. Just just set it up. And I'll figure out how to put in the products and, and everything. So did that and literally used Tim up until the end of last year. And we switched over to a different POS platform. Unfortunately, it was, it was a POS platform mainly for kind of the restaurant industry. So they had a lot of functionality that we didn't need and you couldn't kind of couldn't hide you had the bar but that was probably the only in the og in the original prototype there was no bar so it was all it was just byob at that point in time i was i was actually risk averse in some ways i was full risk in starting the business but i was trying to minimize potential pitfalls and one pitfall i saw was in the alcohol space if i screwed that up i'm done so i didn't do tabc i didn't do a bar in the first one. It was just all BYOB. So, which is fine. A lot of customers actually like that. So there's no bar. So it was just, I needed the most basic payment system. I just needed to take a credit card payment. That was the gist of it. And on day one, did you have employees or were you it? I hired my first employee, I wanted to hire him a couple months before we opened. And he helped me with getting the store built out and getting the store created. We laid all the flooring in the store. We we did the bathrooms. Like we did a lot of the construction ourselves. I, in order to save budget, I took on as much as I could to. And part of it was, I got asked a lot, why didn't you have people do all that? Because I didn't know what I needed to do. I needed to figure it out. I couldn't afford to pay people to come in. And while I'm sitting, no, move it over here. No, move it over there. No, it needs to be like this. No, like it was R and D. Like the first store was literally R and D. So. I couldn't pay people to do it because I didn't know what needed to be done. And there wasn't like a commercial golf simulator installer in town. So every, I mean, there was probably six iterations of how we hung the screens and, and did the bays. And, and ironically, how I wanted to do the original one, I was scared to do it because I was worried the fire marshal would shut us down. So I wanted to do it all modular, like my current one is a bee cave. And I didn't do it that way because I was just like, what if the, if the fire marshal comes in and he shuts us down, I'm, I'm screwed. So I paid a lot to have a contractor come in and kind of build out the bases and drywall and frame them all up, which drywall and golf balls don't really get along well. Lots of loud sounds. So I wish in hindsight I would have had the, the gall to to do what I wanted to do from the get-go, but I just didn't have the, I was like, well, it's going to cost more, but I won't get shut down by the fire marshal, so I won't have to worry about that. And there are all the things that you think about when you're starting. I'd never had a retail business in a retail center. I didn't know how strict that was or how, what, I didn't know a lot of the pitfalls that could be out there, but I went around and looked at anywhere that had a golf bay, and sometimes the sprinklers were going into the bay. Man, sometimes they had no sprinklers. I'm like, how's, how's that all work? So we were just figuring it out and trying to get something. Obviously read a bunch of business books. One of them was Art at the Start. I don't know if you've read that one. It's a really good book. And one of the things in there is don't spend time, an arduous amount of time on a business plan. Like get it open, get to market, get it open. That was some of the best advice is just, you can think through every possible scenario and this and that, but just in the end, you just have to get it open and get going and see what happens. You can't plan everything. I have a friend who had a business many, many, many years ago. He was also an engineer and his business didn't work out. 
And there were a lot of reasons for that. And I think that the single biggest reason was he tried to reverse engineer any potential for failure of any part of what he was doing. And he would stay up till two, three, four o'clock in the morning and whiteboard out all these different scenarios and how he was going to get around it. And, and it took him so long to actually get going. And we weren't talking about some high risk kind of a thing. And we're talking about residential remodeling. And I don't mean to downplay that. Like, yeah, you got to treat somebody's house with respect, but you don't need to come up with a thousand possible scenarios and figure out how to protect against every single one of them. You're going to miss something along the line. There's no business and no ventures without risk. And you have to, and I think that's what keeps a lot of people out of being an entrepreneur and starting a business is that appetite and ability to exist with a certain amount of unknown and risk. And you have to be able just to do that or you're not going to be successful. This whole thing is about figuring out what is acceptable risk and taking it. That's the TABC is one thing. The fire marshal, like what things can shut me down? Another one is like we're dealing with this now is kind of recurring credit card payments. If you don't have authorization to charge a credit card, what things could really get me in trouble? So anything that's that's in that realm, I, I try very hard to make sure we, we have, I don't go ready, fire, aim on those things. I want to make sure that we have everything in place that we're not going to kind of walk into a, a bad situation. What was that first year like? It was very hard. I say this a lot of times. It is by far the hardest thing you will ever do, but it's also the most rewarding thing you'll ever do. I'm five years in plus, and I still haven't had like, I still haven't taken my wife on a honeymoon. I owe her a lot. I haven't had many days off. I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, there is no, it's not nine to five. It's 365. It's every day. There's Every day, every hour, there's always something going on. There's always something that you have to be doing, especially if you're doing something new and that hasn't been done before. There's, especially if you're capital constrained and can't just hire a squad of exceptional people that have been there and done that. There's no way I could afford that with payroll. I have to hire what I can afford. And I, I can't hire people that have started businesses and, and we're CIOs or CTOs, or I can't bring on huge sales and market or marketing and advertising firms. And I can't afford that. So you have to figure it out and you have to do it, do the best you can with what you have. So anyway, the first year was, it was a lot of figuring it out. The, my first employee, like we weren't making enough off the beginning. I couldn't pay him. I was paying him way more than I still think I was probably the most I've ever paid any employee. I paid him way too much because I was desperate because again, my wife is several months pregnant we're getting close to opening i'm like i need some help i hadn't that's another thing i didn't really have a partner it was me and a lot of the podcasts i've listened to about entrepreneurs founder co-founder my co-founder my partner like, yeah i wish i had that so i hired him because i need somebody that, that can help me because I, I just literally can't do all of it so he was with me for i forget how long but he needed in the end he just needed to make more money and I couldn't pay it. So he went off. And I think he's selling pools now. Very successful at it, but brought in my second employee, right? My second employee found me soon after or right when my first one left. So, and then kind of, he was the first kind of golf instructor that I really had. So that kind of started, those things started, you know, it was steadily going better. Word of mouth was good. And even from the get go, the thing that kept the hope alive was the feedback we got was, awesome. Even as terrible as that 
first prototype is compared to what I have now, like everybody loved it. They came in like, this is awesome. This is, I've always hoped something like this would be like, I've always wanted something like this. So still to this day, we get that feedback. If we can get somebody to walk in the door, we will, they will become a customer. It's just getting people to walk in the door is the hard part. You were giving people what you wanted yourself, which is, I want to be able to come and get in this bay and learn what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, and it not be in the context of, yeah, we're here to sell you some clubs, get in, get out. You gave people what you were looking. I had visions of what it would become, but in the beginning, I just wanted to get it out there, have people come in and see what they wanted and see where it went. My model kind of revised as I was getting that feedback and seeing what direction we wanted to go in and what direction it could go in and, and what the demand called for. Because I don't know if you've ever, do you listen to the How I Built This podcast? That was the inspiration for this podcast, yeah. actually. So the Five Guys one, did you listen to that one? I think I have. So they their first store was, I think, like 45 minutes or so outside of D.C. in the middle of nowhere in some shack. And they basically said, well, if we, if we can get people to come here to buy our burgers, then we have something. And then we can make it work anywhere. So similar to my model is Austin's not exactly a bad weather city. And most people kind of equate indoor golf to bad weather golf. You need you only play when it's bad weather. And that's not a successful business strategy. Like, uh, it's funny. I laugh every time. Well, I always have the customers to come in. You know where this would work really well? Where? Let me guess. Minnesota? Like, yeah, where it's cold all the time, I guess. Like, yeah, I guess it would. But, you know, there's a lot of markets that, that don't have that. So if I can make it work here, where most of this year is nice weather and playable golf weather, then I can make it work anywhere. And that was kind of an early on kind of focus of my model and vision was to to turn this into something that wasn't just the place to go when it's bad weather. Now, obviously, our business spikes when it's bad weather, but it needs to be the place that you go to to get better at golf all the time, anytime, because our, the atmosphere, the, the equipment, everything you need to get better at golf is there. Originally, it was just the track man because I wasn't a golf instructor and I didn't know really how to achieve that goal, but I knew that this was a big part of it. And since then, now I have a team of golf instructors. We have, we are very good at making people better at golf and that's at its core what we are and but you also have a good time while you're doing it part of you're not going to get better at golf or anything if you don't enjoy going there and enjoy doing it like if you go to a gym and you don't it's not a gym that you like going to enjoy going to you're not going to go so the atmospheres is the thing that we've nailed the most is that the atmosphere like that's what we we hear all the time the atmosphere here is awesome it's kind of a sports bar it's kind of a country club it's kind of a just golf nerd utopia it can be all those things it doesn't have to be just one of them and that's kind of what we what we achieved and now we're bringing in you know there's a couple different facets to getting better at golf there's you have to obviously do the swing and understand what you're doing wrong what you need to be doing to do it right you have to burn it in you have to practice it rule of ten thousand. you have to you just it's just reps and reps and reps and reps and reps to actually burn in any change in a golf swing or, or, or anything else. You need a place to practice. But a lot of times people practice on the range, just no technology, no idea what's going on, no idea if the ball's going this way or that way for whatever reason. 
And another thing is like feel isn't real. What you think you're doing versus what you're actually doing is oftentimes very different. And when people see their golf swing for the first time, it really, it's eye-opening. It's like, oh my God, I, th- I thought I was doing this and I'm really doing this. And so, yeah. So practicing inside of a rock facility is far superior because you can see it. You have the numbers to kind of confirm what, what happened. And you can actually practice the right way and you get good reps. Not all reps are good reps. So at Rock, they're all good reps and you get better faster. And now we're rolling equipment into it as well to, I think, in a lot of ways, the golf equipment business is highly unethical. People try to buy a good golf swing and the big OEMs are more than happy to sell it to them. But in the end, that's not what makes you better you're not going to get better by just buying your way into it. You have to do the work. That's one of the reasons I like golf. There's no shortcut. You have to do the work to get better. I, photography is a hobby of mine. It has been for a long time. And I, I equate what you just said to, oh, that looks like a, a really nice camera. It must take good pictures. <laughs> there's there's skill. There's things that you have to learn that go into it. It's not just about having a, an expensive camera and, and a nice lens. Talking about the instruction for a minute, you kind of said yourself, you, you were an avid golfer, you loved it, but you, you knew that you needed to work on it. Day one, first person walks in. Are they asking you right out of the gate? Like, Hey, Brian, can you help me with my swing? Yes. I have turned into a golf instructor to an extent. So I'm more of a golf coach now. I've learned initially it wasn't, I mean, initially I, I fake it till you make it type thing. I wasn't a golf instructor, but I understood the golf swing. I understood enough about it where I could help certain people. And both of my first two employees were golf instructors. They they had backgrounds in golf and teaching. And so I knew that was a weak part of my background. So I paid attention every time they were giving a lesson or working with somebody. And I had them work with me. So I knew the basics, if you will. So I can help a lot of people. But there's certain cases that are beyond me. I would be one of those cases. Um, so. <laughs> Honestly, the hardest ones are the good golfers. There's guys that come in that are really good, and it's like, I don't see anything wrong with your golf swing. They want to get 1% better, and you're like, man, I'm here to help the guy that, that's trying to get you know 30% better because he's, he's way down here. Like, I can look and I can do the macro things. Like, I see, are you turning right? The very core basics of the golf swing. I can get somebody who's not very good or has a very bad swing and kind of at least make them feel what a good swing looks like and feels like. But the real fine tuning with with really good players, there's a lot of components to the golf swing and it takes the really good instructors to, to see like this little thing that will make a huge difference. And that's like the really good instructors are. One thing I've found too is that they say the least. The If you go to an instructor and they talk a lot and tell you more than two or three things, then they're not a good instructor because then you're thinking about all these things and you can't. The good instructors, they may see A through F is wrong in your swing, but they focus on A and know that's going to fix B through F. And then they went without even mentioning it. And then you work on the next thing when once you got A down because it fixed five other things because you just did that. And that's what really good golf instructors do. And they have the confidence and the experience to not mention all the other things when a lot of times younger golf instructors will will just this and that and this and this and this and it's way too much and and it confuses and and you're not you don't get better with that. 
as a kid, my dad would take us to the driving range. Dad was playing golf since he was, I don't know, five, six years old, loves it. And he always wanted us to play too. And I didn't have the interest, but I also got frustrated really easy because we would go out and, and not to take anything away from my dad at all, but he would give me the, here's 12 different things you need to do on this swing. I can't do all of those at one time. I need to focus on one, maybe two and get that down and then start working on the rest. And and so what you said about forget A through F, let's just get A, that totally makes sense to me. It's hard, but the hard part is I can see A through F, but I don't know which one A is. Like, I don't know where to start. I don't know because in the golf swing and many other things, but the golf swing specifically, one thing that seems like it's not a big deal can affect all the other things, whether it's your takeaway or your stance or your setup or your, your how you're turning your shoulders, your hips, whatever it is. One thing leads to a bunch of other problems and you have to understand which one to start with. And that's where the, the guys that have just years of experience, they, they understand that and they know that and the ones that don't are just they're giving you things that aren't going to really they're not the root cause of the problem. A lot of it's got to be muscle memory and what you were saying earlier about it doesn't do you any good to, you know, go do more reps with a bad swing. Changing your muscle memory is hard. Yeah. That's really, really hard. It's very, very hard and it just takes time. And that's the other reason I wanted to create the business is I, it's about practicing better. I see guys at the club I belong to that, I mean, they're just out there just hitting balls every day, hours. You're not getting better. You're getting worse, actually. It just takes practicing right. And yeah, the right reps are way better than the wrong reps. I mean, a lot of guys are, they're hurting themselves by, by the way they're practicing. At what point did you decide to open your second location? From the beginning, I had, when I did the original kind of market analysis, and a lot of the, there are a lot of places I found that were very localized. that were somebody's golf shop, Bob's Golf Performance Center. And I knew from the get-go I had, very big aspirations for this. I want to do this to create a, a very profitable business. And I knew one store by itself is not going to do that. So from the get-go and to this day, we're structuring this to scale it. So I knew from the get immediately, I wanted multiple locations and multiple markets. Eventually, I want rock-offs everywhere. We're trying to get it to where it's a business in a box, which is, again, part of the need for the software. Like a franchise model? Yes. Whether conceptually. But yeah, we want to go to a market, say Atlanta, and find a bunch of investors who are golfers, avid golfers who want to invest in a golf business, get together the capital, open six at a time. And that's really all they need to do. We'll do the rest. You will have the software. We'll know how to find the locations, how to build out the locations. We'll have a crew that comes in and does all the work or finds the local subs to do all the work manage the construction, install the bays, has the relationships with the vendors we need to get all the equipment in. They don't, you don't have to solve all the problems that I've already solved. So basically make it a turnkey business in a box and then just go in and, and start firing them up all over. But there's a lot of things that need to be in place before you can scale like that. And that's what we're working on now. I got to believe that going from one to two locations, that was a big jump and yeah, you had a lot of lessons learned from the first one and you, you probably had fewer lessons to learn from the, the next one, but I'm sure that there were still some, but even just the idea of having to manage two locations and this is a 
business to consumer kind of a business. I imagine you're open typical retail hours. You got two places. How has that aspect of it been? Just the the actual management of two separate locations? Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. The first one was just pure prototype. Will this work? Will people pay to come in and rent one of these bays? That was the problem. The first location was viability test more than the, this is going to make a lot of money. We pretty quickly got that answer. We started really cooking until COVID hit. We realized pretty quickly that we had something. And then then we started wanting to expand it. So the first one was about just Willis work. The second store, B Cave, was about getting the store right. So B Cave, the second location, is what I always wanted but couldn't afford. So it's the size I wanted. It's where I wanted it. It has the things in it that we want, the bar, the, the, the bays that I originally wanted to build. So it's the first prototype of the future, if you will. So yeah, so I learned a lot in this one and moving the original one to Westlake will be the second iteration of kind of the that style of store. So the bays have improvements. Everything will have improvements. Each time I should personally be doing less. So the first one, when we moved to BK, I did every, I did a lot. I I designed and built all the bays myself, figuring out how to attach steel column to the floor and, and the spacing and what materials go everywhere and how do you hang the screen and how do you keep the screen down and where do you, I already knew like suppliers, but so it was a lot of work just to figure all that out. And eventually we'll be in a position where all those are just prefab parts sitting in a warehouse. And when we want to fire up a location, we just send a truck. Here's all, here's all the columns. Here's all the screens. Here's all the, here's all the beams. Here's all the joists. Here's how you put it. Here's the manual of how you put it together. Here's how you change the screen. So we're much closer to that now, and each time it should get progressively better. But I think one of the hardest things in this journey for me so far is delegation. I don't want to say I'm a perfectionist, but I like things done the right way. And it's been very challenging to trust other people to employees to to do things and do them the way that they need to be done. And that's been a very challenging thing, but I, you have good hires and bad hires. And I have a really good team right now who I barely ever go to the original store. So they have been pretty much independent for a year now. And I have decent visibility into how that's all going. There have been some problems that were, I should have been going there more often, but it's been challenging. But again, you have to learn how to delegate. You have to trust people to get it done. I read, I was listening to something and there was a book called, I think, I think it's called The Lazy CEO. And he said, if you can delegate a task and it gets done 70% of what you would do it, then delegate it. That's sad, but probably true. That's a hard thing because it's this is like, is an entrepreneur, this is your baby. This is you want it taken care of and you want it in good hands. What you just said, I'm I'm like. I've got chills because I haven't read the book, but in the very early days of my business, I wouldn't let other people do things that I had hired them to do because nobody can do it as good as I can. And my original people had to have been so frustrated. In fact, they're still with us now. And and I'm sure that if we walked over to the office and said, hey, what was it like working with Scott that first year? They would have said, oh my gosh, it was infuriating. And I literally, I swear I've never read the book. I literally thought to myself one day, 
if somebody else can do this 70% as well as I can, the amount of leverage that that gives me to go on and do that next thing, that additional thing, it's totally worth it. And when I finally did give up some of that control, not only could they do it 70%, but most of them could do it way better. And they may have gone about it differently, but it got done and it got done better in in many, many cases. And what that freed me to go do, I, I was able to exponentially do more because I had people that were empowered to do what they were hired to do. You're not going to grow without that. You can only do so much as one person. That's what I talk to a lot of my employees about is like the concept of leverage. If it requires your blood and sweat to make it happen, you are always going to be limited. You're all, you're never going to, until you have other people doing things, you're never going to grow. And in the golf instruction world, that's a big thing that the, a lot of the golf instructors don't fully realize is if you're the one teaching the lessons and you're the only one teaching the lessons. All right. So you can do six a day. How do you do more than that? You have to figure out how to, to expand your capacity. And I look forward to the day where everything is running smoothly and I can go into a hole for six months with hopefully two or three other ninja programmers and build the software platform where I don't have to worry about anything about the business. And it's not just the business can't just survive without you. It has to thrive without you. I can't just go away and hope that the business just doesn't burn down. You need to get the point where the the people you have are growing the business and looking at it from all the angles. And that's, we're not there yet, but I look forward to that day. One of the things I always like to ask about is what have been some surprises and, and you kind of touched on COVID a second ago. So take us through what 2020 and I guess 2021 was like for you. Uh, it was extremely hard and I thought we were going to die. I mean, basically business just stopped. I mean, we're, we're bricking. Everyone's like, oh, COVID was great for golf. Like not, not indoor golf. The scary thing was, as a small business center at that time, and I was a year into it, year and a half into it, nobody knew what we were supposed to do or not supposed to do or what the rules were, what the laws were, what the penalties were, what it was just chaos and what we were supposed to do with employees and what we were supposed to do with, if they got sick and social distancing and masks and, it was terrifying, to be honest. And I thought the business was going to fail. So I had some friends that were trying to do some things on the side and sell masks and, and hand sanitizer. And I tried to do a little bit of that just to, to try to make some money. And because, I mean, our business basically went to zero. I mean, we had we were doing 10% of the revenue that we were doing. That wasn't enough to pay the bills. And because, again, the, the, like the PPP was, in theory, it was a good idea, but how they implemented it was so terrible that I was going to say, like, I thought that there were some requirements about how long you had to have been in business before and you had to have payroll records. And I think about my first couple of years in business and the way that I paid myself. And, and it's very different as an owner. You're, you may be paying yourself as distributions instead of W2 income. So you didn't have much to go to them and say, please fund me. I was paying myself $500 a week for the first year. I mean, so yeah, my payroll was like zero. So when the PPP came along and it's like based on your payroll, I'm like I'm a new business. I don't have payroll. Like my payroll now is five times what it was when I first started. 
And I think I got like $25,000 or something from, from PPP. And it's not nothing, but it doesn't go that far either. And then meanwhile, I know guys that have their wealth managers or whatever working out of their house with zero costs, no office, no staff, nothing. And they get, they're getting like $100,000. I'm like, are you kidding me? They don't even need, oh yeah, we're going on a trip because I just got this PPP money there. And I'm like, I'm about to go bankrupt. And here's all these other companies that have the legal teams and accounting teams to know how to manipulate that system. And they were first in line to get their big, huge check when it, they didn't need it. And the companies like us that needed it to actually survive were we didn't have the resources or know how to actually get it, or we didn't fit the right check boxes on the requirements. So we got, we got peanuts when you fell through the cracks. Yeah. It was extremely frustrating. And then our landlord worked with us. They deferred our rent for a couple months. They didn't give it to us, but we had, we had to pay it back in the next year that hurt 21. So I think they deferred four months rent, three or four months rent, something like that. So I had employees get COVID and then, so they were out for, at that time, it was like 14 days or 21 days. So I only had a handful of employees at that time. So you have to pay them. You can't, you can't fire them. So I paid all my employees. I didn't fire anybody or didn't let anybody go. And I paid all my employees all through COVID. So I didn't pay myself, but I paid them. And, but I dug into a, into a very big hole that we're still in is because of that. So it stinks because, you know, I look back at numbers now and trying to do projections of there's a certain seasonality in our business. And I'm trying to figure out what are our slow months? What are our quick months? But then you overlay COVID one. And really there's another COVID. There's, I kind of say there's two COVIDs. There was the one, the original one in 20. And then there was the, the Delta variant or whatever it was. That was another big hit. And people got scared again. And I've tried to figure out in my numbers for those first couple of years, what, how much was it with seasonality versus how much of it was COVID versus, so I don't really know. I still don't really know. But another frustrating thing was I saw like my little business struggling to survive and start off in that environment. And then I walk into Home Depot or Lowe's and they're just running full tilt. I'm like, so explain to me how this is okay, but that isn't okay. Like how is somebody buying a light necessary? And I'm not necessary. So that was, that was a very frustrating time. You made it through. And here we are today. Were there some just like faithful, loyal customers that just kept coming in constantly? Or was it really hit or miss? Really, my observation throughout COVID was that you really had, it was very polarized. There were one of two things mindsets. There was the, I'm going to be in a bubble and cover up and not go anywhere. And I think this is going to be the downfall of human civilization, or there's a guy, or there's the other side that was like, this is just the flu. And most people were in one of those two camps. And the ones that were in the prior camp and thought that it was the end of civilization, they they didn't come in. They stopped, they canceled, they they stopped coming. The other ones, they came in and didn't, didn't care. So it it was really just dependent. It wasn't a loyalty thing as much as a, what, what your, in my experience, it was a, what is your opinion of COVID? There were a number of surprises that you talked about early on, like the, oh, it's three days before open. We need to figure out how to take a, a credit card payment. 
COVID happens, you're trying to figure out, okay, wait, what, what do we do when somebody gets sick? How long do we have to wear masks? Do we have to do this? What are our cleaning procedures? I mean, what were some other surprises? So I spoke to it earlier. The biggest surprise was how difficult finding a lease, finding a place would be. That was a big surprise. Hiring people, finding people is a very, it's a challenge. One of the reasons I, I saw an opportunity in this space was most golf jobs are really bad. It's a vanity industry. People want to work in the golf industry. It's a dream job to do what you love. And there's a lot of people that love golf and they want to be in the industry, but assistant pros at country clubs, they're really not great jobs. You're getting up at five in the morning. You're working crazy hours. You're not, you're making very little money. So one of the things I saw was that we could make a better golf job. And if we succeeded in that, we would get a lot of we'd get the cream of the crop as far as golf industry talent. But it was surprising for me in the beginning, just just finding good people is hard. And, and like you said, finding people you can trust and finding people that can can execute to the level that you as the founder are okay with and accept is, it's just, it's hard. It's really hard to find people that care as much as you do. That right there, I've said this before and it'll come up again and again, but Hiring my first employee was one of the absolute hardest things I've ever done. And he's still with me. In fact, just crossed seven years together a couple of weeks ago. But once I got over the, okay, I've just now got to the point where I feel comfortable feeding my own family. Now I've got to feed somebody else's family. And oh, by the way, we last. The next hurdle I had to get over was, are they going to care as much as I do? Are they going to care about the success of our customer as much as I do? And Thankfully, he and almost everybody we've ever brought into the organization have, but that's a real thing. You have to bring in people that care as much as you do. And I've had some good hires. I've had some bad hires and I've refined my pitch a bit to be like, listen, we're a startup. It's not structured. There's, if you need a very detailed list of this is what you need to do, it's not that. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be things that you're just going to need to figure out. And there's certain people that can exist in that environment. There's certain people that can't. You need to find somebody like that and say, hey, you get to write the manual. That's what, like right now, our payroll is really high because I see it right now. I'm employing the leaders of what will be. So I could run the business a lot leaner than I'm running it right now, but I'm trying to build the leadership team for what will become. You're investing ahead of the cash flow. I'm investing in hopefully the future leadership of the business and the corporation. So that's kind of how I see it right now. Yeah, I could I could run it way leaner and I could make a lot more money right now if I wanted to get rid of four people and I could take their salaries and keep it all for myself and my business partner and start paying him back. And but it's always been a big picture vision for me. And you're learning the progression is master your area, hire somebody to teach what you mastered, move up and master the next area. You're always building the manual for people to follow and, and building the process. So that's kind of what I'm trying to instill in, in my team right now. And that's the other thing talking a little bit earlier and having a team when you're working for a big company and having employees when it's your company is a completely different thing when it's you're paying them and it's coming out of your paycheck, really. That's in essence, 
that's what's happening. Like every dollar I pay to another employee, I could be taking for myself. And back to the other thing that we talked about, I'm still paying myself minimally. And it's very hard. And there's credit card bills. And there's I have two kids in school. And it's expensive. And eggs are $20 a dozen now. So it's <laughs> we jump from COVID to COVID-2 to ridiculous inflation. And it's been a fun couple of years to start a business. But when you have an employee and you're an entrepreneur, you can't help but think, okay, I'm paying this employee this much money for something that they need to be doing for me. If I didn't have this employee, I could probably do it and take that for myself and be more comfortable at home or be more comfortable or go actually go on a vacation. But I'm always seeing this as I'm investing in the future. So you don't have HR issues really when you're running a team. When I was managing my, my teams and I was an IT consultant, it's I didn't know what they were making and I didn't care. And, you know, if I had to fire somebody or if I had to get somebody off the team or like it wasn't, a, it didn't matter to me really. But on the other side, it's a, it's a whole different experience when it's your company and your P&L, if you will. And you're the one that's got all the risk. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of times the, the, the employees have to be reminded of. I'm like, look, if this fails, you just have to go get another job. If this fails, I'm bankrupt. You know, and now, you know, initially too, it was just my money and mine and my, my father's money to, to an extent, my parents' money. But now bringing on a business partner, he's, he's made significant investment. Now it's a whole different game that it's somebody else's money. And it's the, the sense of responsibility of making sure that this does not fail and this, this works is, it's a whole different level when you start bringing on other people's money and investment. And that's what I think of other hear about these guys oh we're in our c round or d round or e round i'm like at some point don't you have to start making money at some point how do you just keep taking money in losing money being in the red and not i just don't understand that like i've had to i could only eat what i killed from very early on so that's still my mentality in a lot of ways and i don't want to need more capital i want to make the money but then to grow and to grow fast you sometimes just have, you have to do that but there should be the companies that keep taking on more and more and more and more capital. I'm just like, how do you do that? Like, I just, I just don't understand that mentality. You had a business before this and it, it didn't work out. It wasn't a failure like some people experience failure. You know, market conditions effectively shut you down. But that had to have been a big gut punch. When you started Rock, you're married. What gave you the courage to do it again and what was that initial conversation like with your wife when you said, I want to do this? I mean, she's been very supportive the whole time. So I don't know if she fully knew what she was signing up for. And I don't know if we we went back to that day, if she would still make the same decision to be supportive of it. It's been, she's been very supportive. And, and I think that she's been on board. You know, she's worked a full-time job throughout having two kids to support us, basically. I mean, she's been the breadwinner for, for the last five years. Maybe I'm getting close to, to making more than her again, but we'll see. But yeah, so she's she's kept the ship afloat, honestly. And I've worked, I mean, as as any entrepreneur knows, there are no weekends. There is no time off. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I got home at three in the morning and left at seven in the morning as I was doing things, trying to build out the store and get things going and was all night writing code or working on business plans or whatever. So, and it's still this day, like my routine is 
crazy. So, but I always voice it in like, listen, to get, to attain a certain amount of wealth or a lifestyle that, that I want and for our family and for us, it's very hard to achieve that. And I didn't see a pathway for me achieving that working for somebody else in what I was doing. Yeah, I could be a partner at an IT consulting firm at this point if I stayed on and be making a lot more money than I'm making right now and we'd be a lot more comfortable. But in the end, I don't have any equity in it. I don't have any, it's not my business. I'm limited to how much I can grow. So I'm like, this is what, to get us to where we want to go, we have to start a business and and have our own business and have our own equity in, in a business. So that was the sale. And like, again, back to my father and seeing the flexibility that he had because he had his own business, didn't have to, didn't have to ask for time off, didn't have rules for that. It was, that's always what I wanted. Like when my kids, they're still young, we're starting to get into sports and things like that. But by the time they're, they're fully in sports and things, I want to, my vision is to have the business going to a point where I can, I can take a couple of weeks off here or there, whenever I want and go to their games and go to practices and be the coach, and do all those things. And that's really hard to do if you're working a nine to five job for somebody else. So that was kind of the, the genesis of my pitch of why I wanted to start this business. And also I was midlife crisis or whatever. I didn't see a path forward for me and what I was doing and where I was going to be happy. I was, I, I could see myself as a unhappy 50 year old working for some company that hated getting up because I didn't want to go to work and hated going to sleep because I knew I was going to have to go to work. It's been crazy hard, but I can tell you that I haven't got up dreading going to work in five years. So I love doing it. I passionate and motivated and it, it keeps me going as hard and as difficult and as, as challenging as it's been. It's an incredible feeling to the one thing I, I wish my wife would come in to the store more and just hang out because if she were there and when the customers walk in and tell you how awesome it is and, and Dude, this place is incredible. We love it. If she heard that more, I think she would be in a better place and be more bullish on the on the future of it. Unfortunately, she has to be the sounding board of the frustration and the hard things and the stress and the anxiety and all the things that go with trying to start and build and grow a business. I wish she was there for the good parts more. And I'm trying to get her to do that, but she's working full-time job kids and all that stuff so she doesn't really have time to do that either but that's definitely been a challenge but there was a lot of doubt especially during the COVID times there was a lot of fear are we done are we going to be bankrupt are we going to be because another thing people don't realize when you sign a lease a commercial lease for six for five or ten years you sign a personal guarantee on that lease so I'm signed up for ten thousand a month for five years. So if that business fails, it's absolute failure. It's bankruptcy failure. And then you go into bigger, nicer locations. And that's a big barrier to entry of for the space we're in now is if you're not worth multiple millions of dollars, high net worth, they're not going to sign. They're not going to have anybody sign at least for if you're worth a couple hundred thousand dollars. If that's your net worth, that's all you have. You're, you're not getting a a lease in a, a tier one retail center. I mean, because you're signing up for 2.5 million over 10 years. So there's no way that they're going to do that to, to anybody. So having a partner that has that kind of backing and is willing to put that on the line to help grow your business, like that's a huge, 
vote of confidence, number one, and you, you have to have that to, to really succeed. Recently, we put a something out on LinkedIn and, and tried to crowdsource some things. And so we the request was, what are some questions that we should incorporate into our interviews that, that we don't typically ask? And you are the perfect person to ask this question to the very first time. Should you make a business out of a passion or a hobby? And I'm going to add a, another little spin on it. Do you still love golf like you did five, six years ago? Yes, I think that starting a business that you have a level of passion about is is critical to your mental state in getting through the lows. So yeah, I, I think it's it's awesome that I get to have a golf business and something I I love. Would I also like to have a food business, probably, or a or a football business? But golf is my is my business. Everything I do for golf is business. If I go on a golf trip, it's business. If I go to Orlando, go to the PGA show, it's business. So it now I haven't had in the throes of entrepreneurship, I haven't had time to take full advantage of that or even partial advantage of that. But yes, it's I I don't know the other side of it. I don't know starting a business with something that isn't my passion, something that I'm just good at. I imagine you have to start the business with something you're good at at least. That's actually ironic. I started a business at something I wasn't good at, but I was passionate about it. I liked it. Do I still love golf? Yes. I wish I got to play more of it. That's the other thing that the misconception is, oh, you own a golf business. You must play golf all the time. I'm like, no. <laughs> I own a, I have a five-year-old business. I have a five-year-old kid and I have a two-year-old kid. Like I, I don't have time to play golf. I play a shockingly low amount of golf. In fact, I've, I've told my business partner, I'm like, I, once we get like kind of even remotely smooth sailing, I'm going to take like a month where I'm just going to play a lot of golf. And there's an opportunity that like when I'm, every time I go to, I'm a member at a country club, it's extraordinarily expensive now because I play like one round a month. It's a very expensive round of golf. It's a very expensive round of golf every month. But every time I go play golf, I probably pick up one or two customers. I just literally hung out at the club all day. I bring in a ton of customers, but all the other stuff wouldn't get done. I love golf. I love it more than I ever have. I'm better at it than I've ever been. Just for the golfers out there, I went from, I was about a 10 index when I started the business and I got it down to a two in about a year. So that's a pretty big, and that's without really knowing what I was doing. That was just me practicing in a much better atmosphere and environment. Then I had the kids and now it's gone back up to like a four because I'm not playing that much, but I'm a much different golfer now than I was before I started it. And that's what, you know, one of the things that drives me. I know that it works. And I think having a business and a space that you're passionate about, it just helps keep you going through the the downtimes. If I started a IT consulting business or the custom development business and it was a downtime and I wasn't really passionate about what I was doing, it would be very, very, very difficult, I think. I'm glad it's it's in a in an area I'm passionate about. What's next? Short term or long term? What's next? Right now, we're projected to open our our West Lake location in March, so it is now full chaos of getting all that done and getting all those getting that store open, getting moved out of the original store, and getting West Lake open. So that's the the short term. 
the long term is get the team solidified, get the get the staffing right, get everything operating smoothly and and start proving the numbers because the next round will be opening a few more locations in Austin. Most likely all at one time. So open probably another four locations. That's always been the vision. So the next wave will be open those locations and hopefully in parallel be doing the software. So from a business perspective, that's what next. Get it to the point where I'm we're back above water and I can maybe take my wife on a honeymoon. That'd be a goal as well. Cheers to that. We could both use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Can't wait to hear about the 6th and 10th and 50th and 100th location following your journey from here. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Brian Borchevsky, founder and CEO of Rock Golf. To learn more, visit rockgolf.com. That's R-O-K golf.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 